if you'll go to the second book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Bless the Lord. Go to Second Chronicles, please. <clears throat> Chapter twenty-nine. Now, before we read, I want to just do a brief rundown and tell you where we are. And Hezekiah, the reformer king, we have touched on him in weeks past. But we've also looked at how the kingdom of Israel were separated into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And we've shown you that the, from Jeroboam the first in Samaria in the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, we have shown you how Jeroboam the first was there. He was the breakaway from Rehoboam who was Solomon's son. And we went into the prophetic words of, of how the Lord had caught, or sorry, Ahijah, the prophet of the Lord, had caught his coat, his garment, rent it into 12 pieces and gave him 10. And that represented the 10 tribes in the north and the two for the two tribes of Judah in the south. Two capital cities, Samaria in the north, Jerusalem in the south. Jerusalem is where the, God's temple was. And we looked at how even that Jerusalem had went. Remember Ahala? And Ahaliba from last week, um, she has her own tent. Was Ahala was the name the Lord had given to the northern kingdom because of their idolatry and their spiritual adultery. And he says they have their own tent. They have their own form of worship. It's not real worship. They've become harlots and they bring all sorts into their tent and have they lie, they lie as it were, spiritually with other gods. So she was called Ahala. And her sister, the southern kingdom, God called them Ahaliba. My tent is in her, but we've seen how God then changes it in the new covenant to we are his tent in the new covenant, the church of the living God, okay? So we looked at that last week. We have run down all of the kings of the house of Israel from Jeroboam the first right down to Hosea, not to be mixed up with the prophet Hosea, the very last king of of, uh, the house of Israel in the north, and then the fall of Samaria, their capital city, which was around 721 BC. Okay. Now, the reason we've picked Hezekiah is because at the time of Hosea, the last king in the northern kingdom, when the Assyrians come, uh, they come right down onto the border of Judah, the southern kingdom, and they take 46 fortified or fenced cities away with them captive. Then they encroach further down into the Judahite territory, right to Jerusalem. And it's around this time we read about Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, because he turns Judah, Jerusalem, the, uh, the area of Judah, the, the nation of Judah, Jerusalem, and the worship back to God, God works miracles in it and delivers them. We want to look a bit more at Hezekiah tonight in a moment. But here's something that I wanted to point out to you. As I said, all the kings of the northern house of Israel from Jeroboam the first to Hosea, were all bad. Every one of them did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. The longest reigning king in the northern house was Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the second. And he was around the time of Uzziah, Uzziah the king in Judah. So here's the two kings. He was around about that time, Uzziah. And that's when Isaiah, the prophet in the book Isaiah says, in the year the king Uzziah died, 
I saw also the Lord upon the throne. And that's in Isaiah chapter 6. So this king Uzziah dies, and Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom was the longest reigning king in the northern kingdom of 41 years. But you know, we looked through them, I'll not go through them again, they showed you all the prophets to the house of Israel. There was um, especially well-known ones, really, were Elisha, or Elijah and Elisha, Elisha, and then, of course, there was Hosea and Amos. And we have read things from Hosea and Amos. Amos was from the southern kingdom, sent up north to preach against the northern kingdom. And he's the one who says, I am not a prophet, neither is I a prophet's son, but I follow the sheep herds. He was a poor uh, herder, goat herder or sheep herder, and he's the one who followed the herds. Yet God picked him away from nothing. And again, we see even in the new covenant, how God has chosen the weak and the foolish things to confound the ways. And he chose this weak and, if you want, foolish man uh, who, was a, who gathered sycamore fruit, or figs in other words as well. He gathered figs, and which was known as the poor man's fruit. And he ate and lived off that in the land. Yet God seen him, he knew where he was, had a, a plan and a purpose for him and a destiny for his life. And used him to preach to the northern kingdom before their final demise. Isn't it amazing the people that come into your life that know nothing about you, who are the least that you would ever think that God would ever use in the use of your life? That's what God does. And whenever you think, well, I'm nothing, God could never use me. Just look through the Bible, they're all nothing. And God uses them. So to think that God could or would never use me is not right thinking. We need to throw that out because he'll do his will. He'll choose whom he wants. And he'll use you for his glory. Now, whenever Amos goes up, Amos 4 and 12, we looked at it, um, and we see it on the gospel halls, as I said, around some of them and, and different places, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. You know, and here it's Amos 4 and 12, prepare to meet thy God, it says on the board. And that's where that comes from. And he's saying, I have dealt with all the nations around you, but you're even more wicked than them. But because I've loved you, I've given you a chance. And that's what happens. The Lord is long-suffering toward not only people who are unsaved, but he's long-suffering toward you and I because of his love. And so what he does is he keeps putting things and people in our way to try and align his right, preaching the word of God, bringing the word of the Lord to us. And when we do not hearken, listen, and do the will of God, then he has to bring us into the woodshed, as it were. He gets out the four by two and puts us over his knee, as it were. And he says, then I'll fix you. So we're better to hear and do the word rather than hear, not do the word, and the Lord say, my calling's still on you. And that's something else that you can be encouraged with. Because God's calling isn't according to who you are, what you can do, or your capabilities. It's according to whom he is and his will, perfect timing. That's the difference. And so even when we're weak, it's all of you, Lord, and I can't do this. You can, I can't. And once we keep that mindset that really we're nothing and he's everything, but him in us, we can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us. So when we look down uh, through the kings, Hosea in the northern kingdom, he's gone. We looked at Amos and Hosea and so on. He's the last king. The house of Israel as a nation is gone. Now, we looked at also at how there were some left behind in the nation. We you know maybe like you would see in Syria war today, you see them hiding in people in wee pockets. That's the same. It was over a period of years back and forward. 
some Israelites were hiding and moved down south to the house of Judah for safety. But in the days now of Hezekiah, we're about to read, the enemy comes right in. And he's now sitting outside uh, Jerusalem because at this point, Hezekiah's father's torn the doors off the, temp- the temple. He shut the worship down. He's went and worshipped other gods like Israel before. Remember how the Lord looked at Jerusalem and how he showed you God's heart and he called them a harlot and he says, this is who you are before me. You're breaking my heart. I divorced your sister, the northern kingdom, and now you're going worse than what she was. So that was God's heart at the time. Something about the kings of Judah. Now this is the southern kingdom. Kingdom of Israel is gone. This is the southern kingdom. And all of the kings of Judah, from Rehoboam, the first king of Judah, this is after Solomon, the breakup of the kingdom, from Rehoboam, you have Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Amaziah, Athaliah, Joash, Amaziah again, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah, where we are. Then we have Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, who's the last one. Henry the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. Sounds much better now, doesn't it? Uh, but when all of these, here's the thing about these kings. Some of them were bad, some of them were good in Judah. All of Israel's were bad, some of them were bad, some of them were good. And there's a, 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 almost a pattern runs down here, even when compared to the kings of Israel. See, the kings that were good, they lasted longer on the throne and in years. Obeying the Lord. He blessed them more. For example, quickly, Rehoboam, 17 years, he was bad. Abijah, three years, he was bad. Asa, 41 years, but he was good. Jehoshaphat, 25 years, he was good. Jehoram, eight years, bad. Ahaziah, one year, bad. Athaliah, six years, bad. Joash, 40 years, he was good. Joel is the prophet there. Amaziah, 29 years, he was good. Joel was the prophet. Uzziah, 52 years. And yet he finished sort of bad because he, uh, he became spiritually uh, prideful and went from his kingship and tried to become into the priesthood, which was not off him to do. And the Lord gave him leprosy. He was still the Lord's. But the Lord gave him leprosy for moving into a realm that the God hadn't called him for. He became spiritually prideful. And he died that way. And, he, and that's when Isaiah writes in Isaiah 6, in the year the king Uzziah died, that's how he died of leprosy. So he had 52 years, though, because most of his years he was good. Jotham, 16 years, was good. Ahaz, 16 years, he was bad. Now you have Isaiah and Micah, the prophet in your Bible, around this time. Then you have Hezekiah, 29 years on the throne, and he was good. Okay? And we're going to read about Hezekiah in a minute. I just want to finish some of these kings and the timeline, and we'll finish Hezekiah then. When Hezekiah reformed the nation of Judah and Jerusalem and the place of worship, when he brought reformation in and turned the people and called them on to the Lord, the Lord changed the whole, uh, the whole outlook because the Lord sent away the enemy, slayed many of them, and gave him 
uh, abundance of riches. But then he had prayed. We'll look at it too if we have time. He had prayed, and his was a lustful prayer, a worldly prayer. So he started looking then away from the Lord and towards the things he had. So there's something else we have to, to watch out for, that when God blesses us with jobs, or money, or a car, or children, or whatever, remember, don't forget the Lord. Because that becomes a prideful thing that we put our time and effort and pride into this, that God is which God has given us. The amount of people that I would speak to who have, and throughout the years, fallen away from God because the Lord has blessed them so much. Would you imagine that? They haven't time for him anymore for their too hard at work. They have too much work on. But they have loads of money. They're well blessed. But God's house is forsaken. I know people who have pleaded with the Lord for years for a child. And when the child came along, they never came back to God's house hardly until they eventually left. And when I went to see them, they said, having time, child takes up all my time. Pleading with God for it. Same can be for anything. Be for anything. Hezekiah, we're going to look at it. He ended up showing the enemy everything. God says, I gave you that, and you became prideful, forgetting who I was and who I am. Isaiah 29 years, he was good. His son Manasseh was terribly evil and bad. Terrible. Yet he ended up in uh, chains of bondage, literally, by the enemy. And he repented and turned to the Lord. And the Lord reinstated him. And listen, he was on the throne for 55 years. He's the longest. Doesn't it show you that you're never too far gone? That whenever you repent, God can always reinstate you, restore you, and bring your life back into order again. And give you that which you never had. 55 years, Manasseh, and he's known to be probably the worst king of the whole lot. Him and Ahab would have went well, but Ahab was just run by his Zidonian wife, Jezebel. And he turned even more wicked because of her. But really, it was Manasseh was one of the worst in Judah. 55 years. And when you read him, you'll read of the book of Nahum. And so you read that, you think Manasseh's on the throne. And I'll give you an idea of what's happening there. I would like to turn and read some things, go through them, but it would take forever to do all of this. Ammon, his son, comes on the throne. And he's bad. He didn't learn from his father's mistake and from his father's repentance. And Ammon was 20, sorry, pardon me, two years on the throne, but he was bad. And around that time, you read the book of Habakkuk. I will set me, stand upon my watch. I will set me upon my tower and watch to see what he will say unto me. There's a bad king has come on the throne and he's there two years and Habakkuk starts saying this at this time. And of course, Habakkuk uh, is the one who says, and Lord, um, in the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy, for he knows God's starting, his wrath is building up against Judah. His wrath is building up. So these prophets are in the spirit and they're seeing this. Two years and he's bad. Josiah comes on, comes a young Josiah. And he's on the throne 31 years and he was good. And the prophet around that time was Zephaniah. If you want to read that when you go home. Jehoahaz was there 
for three months and he was bad. He only got three months. And Zephaniah was the prophet. Then we start dealing with the Babylonians after the Assyrians come the Babylonians. Around the same sort of area, but there are different people of kings and stuff come out and they start moving. Remember, Israel's gone. This is Judah. They start coming in against Babylon because God's allowing it through Nebuchadnezzar because of their sin. And so the king is Jehoiachin, sorry, Jehoiakim. And he reigned 11 years and he was bad. Jehoiachin was three months, bad. Zedekiah, 11 years, bad. 22 years and three months of a bad king's reign and God had had enough. God had had enough. And in that time, you'll read from Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah is the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah from Jerusalem. And in that time, you'll read in your Bible the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. So you know who's where. Now, what happens is around this time of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and then Zedekiah, you get waves of enemy attack and they carry some away. Jeremiah starts prophesying to them. This is what the Lord's going to do. And they throw them in a pit. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear the gospel today. They'll throw you in a pit. That's antiquated and there's no such thing. And we don't believe in your God. And don't preach hard things against us. And don't tell us what we need to hear, but tell us what we want to hear. And you'll be acceptable. And there was a politically correct brigade. There was the, the soft soapers as well in the days of the prophets. Tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. And so we have Daniel, and we know what happened. Daniel was one of the youngest, young uh, captives that went away in the, one of the first captivities in the Babylon then by Nebuchadnezzar. The book of Jeremiah, we'll read it as well. Jeremiah, he warns them. He says, thus saith the Lord, go in and build houses. God is doing this, but if you fight against them, God says their wickedness will slay you. Go in and build houses because God's going to teach you a lesson in Babylon. He's going to bring you back out after 70 years because Messiah is still to come. His word will still come to pass because he's already spoken it. And so there's some of them are going, we're not going. We won't do it. Don't preach this to us. And Jeremiah's going, no, go in because if you go in, the city will be spared. And what happens is some go in and the Lord gives Jeremiah a picture of good figs and bad figs. The bad figs are those who stayed and the good figs are those who went. The fig tree is the symbol of Judah or Jury, the Jews. J-E-W-R-Y that is. And here we have good figs and bad figs. Okay. Then they all go into captivity. Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, they bring his sons before him and they kill all his sons before him. Then they burn his eyes out. And the last thing Zedekiah remembers, burned into his mind, is the death of his sons. He wouldn't listen to God's word. He wouldn't do God's word. He wouldn't heed to the warning from God's word. How many God's people are like that? When they're in Babylon captivity, we'll read as well. There's a wonderful wee psalm in there. And we'll read it. I tell you what, let's read let's read Psalm one thirty seven. Just keep your finger in the book of Second Chronicles, chapter twenty nine. Just mark it. 
Psalm 137. We'll go this way first. And you shall all know it as soon as I start to read it. 137, verse 1. They're all the way captive. They're away eastward into Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Here the Jews now are in Babylon and they're weeping because of what's happened. We hanged our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. For there they carried us away captive. They that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing on, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, that let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it even to the foundations thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art thou to be, dest- who art to be destroyed? Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Notice the heart of them. First of all, we can't sing. Hang up our harps on the willow trees. And we can't sing. And why can they not sing? You're in a strange land. They were in a backslidden condition. And that's why God had allowed this to happen. And you know, if Christians want to backslide and go into the world, they have to expect that the world is going to carry them away. And the devil's going to have a field day with them and you're going to say, how can I sing the Lord's song in a strange land? People may even ask you, what about this Jesus you said you love? What about him? And they're saying, they're, they're requiring from us mirth. They want us to start singing and be joyful and forget the things that we already know. But see, the real child of God will never, ever be happy in the world. Never. Never be happy. Never be satisfied because they know their Jerusalem is in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they'll, they'll, they'll be like, if I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. And if your chief joy to those who are in the world is what they do in the world, or the chief joy to the backslider is, well, my chief joy is going out at the weekends, or whatever it may be. If you prefer that over Christ, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Because none but Christ can satisfy. And that's what they're really saying here. They're thinking of Jerusalem. They're thinking of the temple. And they're saying, it's there. We need to get back to God. And so we find that they're giving up hope. They've hung their harps up. And they have they've given up hope. Turn with me. To Second Chronicles twenty nine. So when you're looking there, so they're in, they're there all the way, and there's a remnant in Jerusalem, and they're they're sort of backslidden, half baked escapees. And when they're in Jerusalem, you'll also read of Ezekiel by the river Chebar, seeing the glorious man. Ezekiel's given the the the, the prophetic visions of end time of. Gog and Magog and so on. 
the chariot of God, as it were, and the wheels within wheels, and all these mysterious and wonderful things. Uh, Ezekiel's given all of those, and of course, a holla and a hollybah and all those sort of things we looked at. But also, also, you'll not only read uh, Ezekiel there, but you'll read Daniel in the land's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego. They're all there. The handwriting on the walls in Daniel 5 when the kingdom comes to, to Darius of the Medes and the Persians. And they're still under captivity. And that's when you'll read all of that. And there's a wonderful scripture we tend, I tend to look at it that talks about their release back out. Talks about their release back out. But here's some pointers about Hezekiah, this reformer before, and then we'll finish around there. Let's just go 29 verse 1. We'll skip some of this. Just to, I just want to lift this out and show you what turned the enemy away at the start. And if they had walked in this, they'd have had full victory. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 5 and 20 years old. And he reigned 9 and 20 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah and his, the daughter of Zechariah. So first of all, you can write, here is Hezekiah's coronation. Hezekiah's coronation. He's on the throne 29 years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father has done, had done. And he in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. See that? It was shut down. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street. He said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. Here is a cleansing of the temple. Brothers and sisters, now when we go into the new covenant, we showed you last week that the temple or the tabernacle of God is you. Now we are perfected in Christ positionally. But what about in reality in our lives. Do we need to cleanse the temple? Do we need to sanctify it away from the things we have allowed ourselves to drift into? Verse 6 says, For our fathers have trespassed and done that which is evil in the eyes of the Lord our God, and have forsaken him and turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs also, they have shut up the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the God of Israel. Notice this. Shut it down. All form of worship and praise was shut down in Judah. The temple, the church doors were closed. You know, I know there's a lot of people and they think, you know, well, if the churches and religion causes, you know, it's always uh, religion causes all these uh, wars and do you know, in comparison and percentage ways, in uh, comparison to what atheism and through communism and other things have caused wars, it doesn't even look anywhere near what religion has caused. It's nowhere near it. So really, atheism causes more. Godlessness causes more. I'll try and get the statistics sometime and read them to you. They've done studies on it. And what they're saying here is, they've shut up the doors, but what if the people out there come and they say, well, we want to get married in a church or we want to have um, in other churches we don't do it, but christenings and so on. They come to church what about funerals. They want church. They want ministers. They want, I mean, uh, we get it all the time. What if there weren't any? 
if there wasn't any? What if the doors of the house was shut? Do you know if he's, if he's sitting here tonight, and I'm glad to see so many of you, do you see a few, you sitting here tonight, what if we all sitting here thought like those who could be here, I know it's ours, ours who can't, but those who could be here and are not here, what if we all thought like that? What if we all thought like some of the ones who'd come on a Sunday morning but not a Sunday night or Sunday night but not a Sunday morning? What if we all thought of that? Those doors would be shut. And people would be saying, isn't that terrible? The churches in Ireland are closing down. There was a church in Belfast recently and it was rumoured to be said in and, and the Shankill Road of all places, Evangelical Shankill Road, and, uh, 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 and of all places that, that was in the newspapers that the Muslims were banded over to turn it into a mosque. The doors were shut. See on, on social media, people were going mad. How dare they? This is terrible. How come the church shut? And someone came on and wrote, did you ever, do you go to church? Well, no, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. And hardly any of them went to church and someone else came on and says, that's why they're shutting down. If we all thought like that, there wouldn't be a place of worship. If we all decided to sit in and watch, I don't know, whatever, EastEnders, I don't know, and on a Tuesday night, you know, then it wouldn't be a Bible study. It wouldn't be a Sunday night or a Sunday morning. Or, and that, that's the idea of me pushing all the time. Come on, get out, get out, because people would tend to not. Here, they had the church, as it were, the temple shut and was run down. And see, spiritually in our own lives, we find that it's so easy to close the doors. It's so easy to blow out the candle and let the lamp die out. The lamp of our first love, the lamp of our passion, the lamp of our faithfulness. You know that lamp where you, you, you're looking at the clock? Well, I do anyhow, but I always did. I look at the clock and say, I can't wait to get in to worship the Lord. Looking forward to being in the prayer meeting. Looking forward to being in the house of God. Looking forward to breaking bread. Looking forward to hearing the word. Looking forward to sing his praises. Looking forward to being among God's people. I was always like that. When I was in secular work, if there was going to be a traffic jam and I was driving so nice, then I'd be pulling my hair out to try and get back in time because I was watching the clock. Oh, I'm going to be late. And if the boss wanted me to work overtime, I just point blankly refused most of it. No, I have to go to church. I have to be at my meeting. You're fanatical. That's what I got. You're fanatical. I says, no, I just love the Lord. <laughs> I want to be there. They had shut everything. We allowed the Lord to move in us. We can open up. And it shows you that sometimes in our lives we shut down. But see, if we allow the Lord to move in us, we can open up again. He can relight the fire, as it were. He can cause that, that passion to come back again. Verse 8 says, Whereof the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, and to hissing, as you see with your eyes. For though our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this, now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Notice what Hezekiah says. The leader says, I'm making a covenant with God. 
Whatever it takes, Lord, I'm turning us back to you. Whatever it takes, Lord, we're getting back to the reality of the word. We're getting back to the worship. We're getting back to the truth. We're getting back to things that count as long as it's to do with you. I'm making a covenant. Why don't you, even in your heart, and I say, Lord, I'll make a covenant with you. I'm going to pursue you every moment I can. I'm going to pray every moment I can. At my lunchtime, I'm going to take out my Bible and I'm going to read it wherever I am. I'm going to pray wherever I am. I used to do it all the time. Some of the conversations you get is fantastic. Some of the heckling you get is good too, you know, but some of the conversations is fantastic. I used to be working, there used to be big racks, and we used to have all these big racks with all these parts on it, you know, for different machines. And I used to walk around, walk around the back and just say, Lord, I just want to tell you for a wee minute that I love you. That I worship you and then go back around and go back into work, round into my work again. And maybe a wee while later, later I'm down the back of the store, I used to just turn around and say, Lord, I'm just back again to tell you that I miss you. And that's why I just always was. Being grateful for what he's brought you from, saved you from. But I've grew up in a Christian home where I grew up and not a bad life, but that's fine. He saved you from hell. Or how good you were. Kept you from it too. So it goes both ways on all of us. So you have Hezekiah's coronation. You have Hezekiah's reformation there. And you can read that right the whole way down to about verse 19. Then you have Hezekiah's consecration. Verse 20, Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bullocks, seven rams, seven lambs, seven he goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on on the altar of the Lord. Now, if you read there, you'll read it's just all sacrifice and worship, sacrifice and worship. And he's consecrating it with blood, setting it apart with blood. And that's what's wrong in in many of so-called or whatever we can put it in church circles. We have forgotten the blood, power of the blood, cleansing of the blood. And he just thought, blood, blood, blood. Then he goes into worship, worship, worship. Watch this. Let your eye run down. Verse 25. And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with symbols, with psalteries, with harps, according to the commandment of David and of God, the king seer, and Nathan the prophet. For so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets. That would have been some worship night, wouldn't it? Here's the blood. Here's the worship. Yeah. Here it is, blood sacrifice, repentance, now worship. And all the congregation worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now, I don't know how long that takes to see a carcass, hundreds of carcasses, hundreds of them there were being burned. But last Saturday when we stood out there, myself and Andy Hall and Timmy at the end, and the fire that was burning out the back, out there were all those trees and bushes at seven o'clock. And at the end, I had to get water and throw over some of them because I thought this, well, Timmy got the water really, but he says, 
This is taking so long to burn down, you know. And we're saying it was, getting, it was dark by this time and the only glow of the fire was there. How long did it take for all these bones and all this flesh and all this altar wood? And How long did it take to burn? Do you know what they've done? The students sang and worshipped. The students sang and they worshipped. Talk about standing and worshipping for a length of time. They just kept worshipping and kept worshipping. You see, can you imagine what the presence of God must have been like in the place? Verse 29 says, And when they had made an end of offering the king and all that were present with him, bowed themselves and worshipped. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and the vice of the seer. And they sang praises with gladness. And they bowed their heads and worshipped. And Hezekiah answered and said, Now you have consecrated yourself unto the Lord, Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings unto the house of the Lord. And the congregation brought in sacrifices, thank offerings, and as many as were of a free heart burnt offerings. So all of a sudden they're burning all of this to have the worship band up, as it were, and they're having all this worship going on. This is all burnt down. And then he says, okay, congregation, now it's up to you to start worshiping in your own spirit. A worship band can try and lead you into praise and a, a, a leader of it or a pastor or, or a headbanger like me walking up and down shouting and praising. Come on, let's worship and praise. But worship isn't from the worship team. Worship's from the heart. Worship's from the congregation. The congregation are those set apart for the Lord. Worship's from your heart. And the free heart brings offerings of worship and praise. And he says, if you have a free heart, he says, then bring and worship. Bring and worship. This is what turned wrath away. Can you imagine if every uh, blood-washed believer in Ulster started, Lord, we're coming and we're going to worship until your presence is here, until repentance has been made until we're sure, Lord, that we are right in your sight as a people, and we're going to fill the places, and we're not moving until the burnt offering's almost extinct and extinguished. And then after that, the congregation's going to come with a free heart and start to worship again. This is what turned the enemy away. And what enemies attacking you and I, what will turn them away? But things like this. Things like this. Then he says, Jeremiah run down, verse 36. And Hezekiah rejoiced and all the people that God had prepared the people for the thing was done suddenly. Hezekiah rejoiced when he saw the people, but you know what he says? Even that's not of you. God prepared you to do that. Everything we do for him is actually from him. Isn't it strange how whenever even, I've even prayed it recently myself, and I says, Lord, help me to glorify you. In fact, I prayed it today. And then I says, Lord, I feel so silly saying that that I need you to help me glorify you instead of being able to do it myself. Even that, I rely on you. 
chapter 30, and Hezekiah sent it all Israel and Judah and wrote letters. Now, notice the names here. Now, Israel's gone, remember? The last king, Hosea, is in the, re- in the reign of Hezekiah. So this is around about the time. He's on the throne. This is all happening. And the house of Israel's being carried away. There's war going on. They're being carried away. He sent letters to all Israel and Judah. There's the northern kingdom, Israel. Judah, the southern kingdom. Wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh. They are Joseph's sons who were... Who were uh, East Manasseh was over Jordan in the north and West Manasseh was on the other side of Jordan in the north. But Ephraim became known as the whole, not only the tribe, but the whole northern kingdom. But he goes right up as far as those northern tribes. And he sends out, and he says, and, and that they should come, those to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. You see, it was broken down now. And they were worshipping Dan and Bethel, the golden calves. Remember, I was telling you those. So he said, come down and worship. Return to the Lord your God. To keep the Passover for the Lord God of Israel. And the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently. Neither had the people gathered themselves to gather to Jerusalem. And the thing pleased the king and all the congregation. So they established a decree to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan. Notice that. From Beersheba to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover. So here in Jerusalem, he's saying, from Dan to Beersheba, or here from Beersheba to Dan, where these golden calves are and all this false worship started, he says, I want you to go right out there. I go, but the Assyrians are going mad there, and they've taken most of them away by now. Uh, and and uh, Hosea, the last, Pekah, and then Hosea, the last king, uh, basically they're all destroyed. They're being carried away captive, and there's hooks through their jaws, and I don't want to go into the middle of that. The king says, go and tell them if I come. God will answer prayer. So notice this. Read all Israel from Dan Beersheba, they should come, keep the Passover of the Lord God of Israel, Jerusalem, for they had not done it of a long time in such sort as it was written. In other words, this is from the first king. Remember Rehoboam and Jeroboam at the very start in the separation? Jeroboam says, These be thy gods, Israel, who set up these calves. So all these kings later, he says, You haven't done it in so long. Notice, so the post went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah, according to the commandment of the king, saying, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant, now note this, to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the Assyrian. So there are those who had escaped and were in hiding. He says, Come down into Judah, worship with us. Be not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord and enter into his sanctuary, which he had sanctified forever. And serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of, of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you turn again unto the Lord, your, the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So the posts passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Nasa, even to Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. And nevertheless, divers are various from Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. See, when you get in to the, to the, the New Testament, there's two people there at the dedication of the temple of the Lord Jesus as a baby. 
One of them is a woman called Anna of Isher. So Anna of Isher, people say, well, if they're all taken away captive, they almost be there because Anna of Isher, that's one of the northern kingdom. No, there's a remnant who have escaped and she, her family, way years past, must have came down to Judah and stayed there. And why she represented the northern kingdom. You see the plan that God had even then? That when Christ comes, that, they, that that would still be represented. Do you see even whenever they come down, God knew everything in advance that one of their line, their children, their posterity, would see the Messiah. It's amazing when you think of it, isn't it? So people wonder, well, how did she get there? That's how she got there. It's part of her relatives. Okay. I have to run on. So that's Hezekiah, his Invitation, you can write there. Hezekiah's consecration, that was Hezekiah's invitation. Let yourself flick over. So Sennacherib comes. That is the king of Assyria, and he's coming down, and he's around Jerusalem. And we have dealt with this, and Hezekiah, they say, let not Hezekiah put your trust in his God. I would like to go into the word truster because it's a wee bit different. I haven't really time to do it, so I'll, I'll not go into it. But really the word truster is put your confidence in him. Don't let Hezekiah put your confidence in his God. Don't let Hezekiah uh, set your hope upon his God. Don't let Hezekiah throw your cares upon his God. That's what it means. So the enemies are saying, don't let Hezekiah put confidence in the God of Israel or in his God or put your cares upon him because all the other gods of Israel didn't stop us and we've taken them away. But what they didn't realize were the other gods were false idols. But this was the living God they were dealing with. So the Lord turns them away and we did look at it. We'll not go there again. So let your eye run down to verse Chapter 32, verse 4. 24, pardon me. This is after this. The Lord saves Hezekiah and the hominids of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Now let Jeriah go down to verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick to the death. Prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. Did you notice that? Isn't that strange? After all the reformation, consecration, invitation, right from his coronation. Here's Hezekiah's deterioration. According to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem, notwithstanding Hezekiah, humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had exceeding much riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries of silver and of gold and of precious stones for the spices and for shields and for all manner of pleasant jewels. Storehouses also for the increase of corn and wine and oil and stalls for all manner of beasts and coats of flocks. 
Moreover, he provided him cities and possession of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him substance very much. This same Hezekiah also stopped the upper water course of Gihon and brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. God's blessing him. How be it, you know something's coming, don't you? In the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon who sent on to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him that he might know what was in his heart. First of all, in verse 24, we have Hezekiah's health deterioration. Now we have Hezekiah's spiritual wisdom deterioration. Turn with me to Second Kings. We want to finish here. Second Kings, please. Chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him, and the Lord said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Isaiah says to Hezekiah, You're going to die. Set your house in order. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart and have done that which was good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore, and it came to pass, afore Isaiah was gone out into the middle of the court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee in this city out of the land of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own name's sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs, and they took it and laid it on the boy, and he recovered. In other words, like a tumor. They made a they made a medicinal poultice, put it on. Now why did God just not say to Hezekiah yourself, Hezekiah, this is the Lord your God, your heel? Why did God not send Isaiah in to say, I'm laying my hands on your heel? Why would he say, go make a poultice, put it on it as a medicinal purpose? Here's, here's a medicine being used for the glory of God. You ever think like that? Why? We could say, well, why did God not do it this way? Why did God not do it that way? Why does God not do it this other way? We don't know because he's God and he does whatever he wants. Gives him 15 years and he heals him. And we're told then that he showed all the things of, the, of God uh, to the Babylonians. And this caused them to think that could be ours. Remember the pride of having things? Uzziah had spiritual pride. Now his grand, great-grandson Great-grandson, yeah, has a physical pride, lust of the flesh he has. I want, I want, I've got, I've got, I've got, and it took him away from the Lord. And the enemy comes in and looks around and says, what have you got? I've got this and I've got that. Look at everything that I've got. Aren't they wonderful? And the Lord says, it's time to go. If he had have went, his son Manasseh would maybe never have been on the throne. Manasseh brought terrible heartache to Judah. 
yet he repented. Got 55 years on the throne. So, I'm not going to do another week at this because I could go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. After Manasseh and all those kings comes to Zedekiah. His sons are killed, his eyes are put out and they're in Babylon. We've read Psalm 137, they're in Babylon and there you read, of course, Daniel, Ezekiel and Jeremiah around that time. You'll also then, when they're coming out of Babylon, you'll read of Esther, the queen, the Jewish queen in there. He becomes queen. Esther's there. Haman, the adversary. Mordecai, her uncle. You'll read about that story. And that's in Babylon. You'll also read um, the book of... uh, Ezekiel talks of part of it, but you'll also read the book of Ezra, the priest, Nehemiah, who builds the walls. And that's Zerubbabel's temple and all that's being built. That's them coming out. But out of all of those that were carried away, there was only about 49,000. 42 at the start, and then there's a few more. Roughly about 49,000 out of all them that came back. And see, when you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, of those who came back, you read the name Israel because obviously they're part of Israel. You read the name Judah. You read the name Benjamin. You read the name Levi. But you never name. Read the name of one other tribe again. Never again. They're not there. You may get the odd one or two here or there, but they're not there. People, I mean. So, that's post-exilic. And when that happens, you read Nehemiah, Ezra, you read the prophets Haggai. They build the temple with un, God's house with untempered mortar. You remember? It's an old cheap temple, and their houses are full of the best. The Lord's saying, look at my house. I mean, you can give to that. And you can plow into your own kingdom in your own home. But my temple's away to waste. That's what he's saying in Haggai. Then you have Zechariah. Then you have the last book, which is Malachi. In the last chapter of Malachi, God promises to send the spirit of Elijah in the last days. Behold, Elijah will send him before the coming of the Lord. That's the last. And 400 years passes, and that's when we have the books of the New Testament. In the book of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most contested and argued chapters in the whole of the Scripture. Gabriel comes and gives him what's known as uh, uh, Daniel's um, 70 weeks prophecy. And the last week is the most contested part. Anyhow, that's another story. But in that, in Daniel chapter 9, if you read, Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah and other books. Read Daniel chapter 9. He's reading the prophet Jeremiah, the scroll of Jeremiah. And the Lord says, you know, whenever we are always reading Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, I know the plans I have for you. Well, God's talking to Judah about bringing them back out to build the temple for Christ to come. That's what he's speaking of there. And he says, 70 years I put on you. So Daniel now is growing up into an older man. He's reading the scroll of Jeremiah. He's saying, hold on. Lord, you said 70 years. And he starts doing his Bible prophecy time clock on his head. And he works it out and he says, this is the common time. He starts repenting for Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, and them that are far off and all the countries that have been scattered. Read Daniel 9 because he's reading 
Jeremiah. Then when you get the, the, the angel Gabriel coming, he says he's putting these seven, uh, 70 weeks and you multiply them. I'll not go into it. But the, the argument is that there's someone will come with a, a new covenant and people say, well, this would be a, a one-man future antichrist who makes a covenant with the Jews and it's broken earlier. That's not what it means. That comes from fictional story. If you read Jeremiah, the book that Daniel's reading, and read Jeremiah 31, the Lord says, Behold, the day has come when I will make a new covenant with you. It's that covenant. What is that covenant? It's that covenant in the blood of Christ and the cross. And what happens? He's cut off, and he stops the oblation and the sacrifices. High Through the shedding of his own blood. And the Lord's going to anoint the most holy. And people say, well, I'm going to anoint something in the future. No. He was anointed in the river Jordan with the Holy Ghost when the Spirit of the Lord came in the form of a dove. I'll teach about that sometime. That's the controversial bit because the church is split on that. Is it, which is this one? But if you, if you think of it logically, Daniel's reading Jeremiah and he says, there's a covenant coming. What covenant? We're only after reading it in the Word of God and confirming it. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to about 33, if you read it. Not the covenant I made to your fathers, but I will put it in your hearts, walk in you, be your God. We have it. It's our covenant. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. Listen, God bless you. Time's flowing.